So chapter 16, starting in verse 17. And I'll read these five verses for our consideration tonight. So John sees, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So again, two weeks ago, we looked at the previous section, which was the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth bowl uh, two weeks ago. So verses 8 through 16 of Revelation 16, which is, again showed us bowls 4, 5, and 6 of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Uh, just a brief review, the, the fourth bowl was poured out into the sun, and then the effect was that people on the earth were scorched with a fierce heat. The fifth bowl was poured upon the very throne of the beast. In verse 10, the fifth, bowl, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom. So this is a direct judgment on the beast and his kingdom, and his kingdom was thrown into darkness. And as we saw, it was so dark that the darkness could be felt. And then the people were gnawing on their tongues and, and uh, blaspheming God because of the pain. And then the sixth bowl was poured on the river Euphrates, drying it up, allowing the kings of the east to cross. And then you see the unholy trinity here, the beast or the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. They open their mouths and these great um, f- spirits come out, spirits that are, you know, take the form of frogs and they go out uh, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth, of the whole world to gather them. So these, the unholy trinity sort of in some way, shape, or form gathers the entire world to gather and come up against and do battle with uh, God on the great day of God Almighty. We see that in verse 14. And then we have that great battle at Armageddon. They're gathered to the place which is called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now again, all these bowls represent, as we've been saying, the fulfillment, the completion, the fullness of the wrath of God as He is pouring out upon the world below. This is it. This is what the Bible refers to as the great and awesome day of the Lord as predicted in the Old Testament through many Old Testament prophets. The great and awesome day of the Lord. And with these bowls, the wrath of God is Finish. It is complete. It is fulfilled. It has been poured out in its fullness upon the earth. So that's the recap. Now, the Armageddon revisited. Okay. Now, I, I do want to take a few moments because, I, I, like I said, I really felt bad after last time because I, I explained all this and then when I looked out at everybody, I just saw the blank looks on the faces. And I feel bad because I... 
I, I like to at least think that I can explain things fairly well and at a simple level and then sort of try to give you a big picture. And I think what happened was I got caught in the weeds. I got caught in the details and not so much on the big picture. So I'm going to try it again. Hopefully this will be way shorter, uh, but also uh, want to go over those views again one more time. Um, to set the stage, please just look up again at verses 14 through 16 of chapter 16. Uh, so in verse 14, again, this is in, uh, as a result of the sixth bowl being poured out. Uh, for they are spirits, these, these uh, frog-like spirits, these unclean spirits coming out of the mouths of the unholy trinity. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So these wicked spirits that are coming out of the mouths of, of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are sent out to gather the world together for the great day of battle. And in verse 15, you get a, a phrase that Jesus himself speaking, talking about how he's going to come as a thief in the night. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments uh, clean, lest he walk naked, lest they see his shame. And then in verse 16, and they gathered. So these spirits go out to gather the kings and the nations of the world, and they gather together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So that's, that's the passage. Now, if you have a New King James, and not using one of the Pew Bibles, but one that actually has footnotes and whatever on it, Armageddon should have a footnote. Does Armageddon have a footnote in your Bible? Okay. Now, if you look down to where the footnote says, you'll see the words lit, period, which means literally, Mount Megiddo. So in other words, Armageddon, the translation in your English Bible is translating what is literally, at least according to the translators here, literally said in the Greek, Mount Megiddo. And then you've got another phrase there that says M Megiddo. M just means the majority text. So in other words, in the majority of Greek manuscripts, the mount is dropped off. That's all it means. It's just Megiddo, not Mount Megiddo. That's neither here nor there. But you've got that footnote that tells you that Armageddon refers to Mount Megiddo. Now, again, verse 16 tells us it's a Hebrew word. So this is called in Hebrew. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Hebrew words being ported into the text. Because in chapter 9, I believe, you don't need to turn there, but when the bottomless pit is opened up, we are told in verse 11 of chapter 9, and as they had king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. So there, there's another example in Revelation where they bring a word in from Hebrew and they tell you this is the Hebrew word, but in Greek it's called this. So Abaddon or Apollyon, both means the destroyer. Again, neither here nor there. But this is a word brought into the Greek, and in the Greek the word is harmageddon. There's a, 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 what they call a rough breathing sound that gives you an H sound. Now, Megiddo, the actual region or town of Megiddo, is on a plain, a vast plain, 50 miles about, almost, almost due north of Jerusalem. If you have a Bible map, you can find it somewhere. It's, kind of little, it's mostly north, a little bit east of Jerusalem. Okay, that's where the, the place is. Now, Megiddo, 
was the location of some significant battles in the Bible. According to Judges 5.19, it was the place where the Jews or the Israelites, led by Barak and Deborah, had defeated the Canaanite army. So when the Canaanites rose up to oppress the Jewish people in the book of Judges, which happens quite a lot, right? If you're familiar with the book of Judges, the, the people would, there would be the cycle. The people would sin. God would send an oppressor to, as judgment over them. Then the people would cry out to God, and then God would send a deliverer, and then the deliverer would defeat the enemies of God's people. Then there would be peace for a, period, a, a, a variable period of time, and then the cycle would repeat itself. So this is one of those cycles. It's the third, I believe, if you go by the... I think there's... Off, uh, anyway, Othniel, then Ehud, and I think then Deborah and Barak. Anyway, it's one of the cycles. So they're, they're oppressed by the Canaanites. Barak and Deborah lead the Israelite army, and they defeat the Canaanite army at Megiddo. Megiddo is also a place, according to 2 Kings chapter 23 where the Egyptian king, Pharaoh Necho, killed King Josiah. So King Josiah was killed in a battle at Megiddo. So we've got some of these battles in the Bible that occur at this place called Megiddo. Now, linguistically, Harmageddon sounds like in Hebrew, it sounds like the word in Hebrew, Har-Megiddo, which means the Mount of Megiddo, because Har, the word Har in Hebrew means hill or mountain. So in, in, linguistically, it sounds like Mount Megiddo or Harmageddon. But it's interesting because in 2 Chronicles 35, 2 Chronicles 35.22 calls Megiddo a valley, and Zechariah 12.11 calls Megiddo a plain. So either way, valley, plain, there's no mountain there. So why would there be a Mount Megiddo in a place where there is a plain? So, now as far as interpretation goes, there are three ways to understand this. You can understand this literally. Okay, that's what our dispensational brothers and sisters do. So they would say, in the far distant future, way after the Great Tribulation, way after the church has been raptured out of the world, you have the seven-year tribulation, and then near the end of that seven-year tribulation, Satan, just like he does here, he's going to gather all the armies of the world and they're going to gather at Megiddo and they're going to fight the armies of God. That's the literal interpretation of it. They they will be led by a future Antichrist who will gather the world's forces to battle the people of God at this place, Megiddo. That's literal. Secondly, you can look at it figuratively. So at some point in the future, we don't know when, But when things seem very bleak for the church and seem very bad for the people of God, God will deliver His people in a dramatic and decisive manner like He did in the past, like one of these Megiddo-type battles. So just as God delivered His people from uh, the Canaanites in Megiddo during the book of Judges, God in some point in the future will deliver His people from oppression in the future, which will then usher in the final state. So he will deliver his people in a battle like a Megiddo-type battle. Now the third view is, I'm calling it linguistic slash biblical. I'm not saying that the other two aren't biblical, 
but I'm saying this one draws more evidence from the Bible. This is the one that I kind of floundered over two weeks ago trying to explain to you all. So I've got this in very two short points here. The linguistic part of the argument suggests that in bringing the word from Hebrew to Greek, there's a little bit lost in the translation, and instead of Armageddon or Mount Megiddo, it really means the Mount of Assembly. Okay, there's a word in Hebrew that sounds like Megiddo that if you change some letters, will be the Mount of Assembly. The biblical part of the argument looks to Old Testament passages that speak of a final gathering or assembly of God's enemies for judgment at Mount Zion. The Mount of Assembly is Mount Zion. Think of Psalm 2 again. Psalm 2, the Messianic Psalm that talks about how the nations rage against God and they rage against His anointed, saying, you know, we are going to kick them out, we're going to take over. And then God is on His holy mountain. That is Mount Zion. God is on Mount Zion and He looks at the gathered forces against Him and He laughs in derision at them because their, their, their effort will be futile. So those are the three views. Now, whichever one you prefer, I prefer the third. The point, here's the point, okay? If, this, if, if you take nothing away from this, this is what you need to take away from Armageddon. The point. Armageddon is that sixth, as the sixth bowl is poured out, the judgment is that, the, the, is that it entices all of God's enemies to assemble for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Now keep your finger here and flip over to Revelation 17, 14. We'll be looking at this in uh, two or three lessons from now. But we see here, this is talking about Babylon the Great, the meaning of the woman and the beast, this Babylon uh, is this great city that entices the kings of the world And we see in verse 14, these, that is the power of the kings of the world, will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. You can flip over to Revelation 19.19. This is the... We're going to actually be looking at this passage next Sunday. I'll be preaching through this next Sunday. But Revelation 19.19 looks at the return of Christ as He comes on a white horse. And in verse 19, he says, John says, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against Him who sat on the horse and against His army. And we'll see that it's not much of a battle, Right? The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So you got all these gathered forces. Jesus comes on his white horse, opens his mouth, and they're all decimated in, in a fraction of a second. So this great battle, it's not much of a battle. Right now, again, if they, this were being done in a movie, if you were making a movie about this, this would probably take like an entire half hour or 45 minutes with a lot of CGI worked into it, and you have this great massive battle, but really it's just going to be like, boom, they're done, and that's it. 
Then finally, Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. This is after a satanic rebellion. After the thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison, verse 8, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. That just means everywhere, the entire creation. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. And again, it's, you know, it's, it's all the same battle. Okay, Revelation 17, Revelation 19, Revelation 20, and then going back to Revelation 16, it's all the same battle. It is that final battle at, as I'm arguing, you know, the, the Mount of Assembly, or Mount, you know, Mount Megiddo, however you want to call it. All that it means is that at the end, the, the forces of evil are gathered together to attack and try to overcome God, and they are completely wiped out in a flash of an eye, in the blink of an eye. And again, as we saw in, in Psalm 2, what happens in Psalm 2, Jesus will come and He will break them with a rod of iron and He will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's Armageddon in a nutshell. Now you're probably thinking, why didn't you say this two weeks ago? <laughs> Does that make a little more sense? Please shake your heads. <laughs> because if not, then next time I'm just going to revisit it again. It's a gathering. It's all, it's all that bowl means. And, and if you think about it, it's kind of like a trap, right? God sets the trap. The trap is, hey, look, let's go attack God. And all the people gather and they're completely wiped out. It's like a... It's like a you know, a roadrunner, <laughs> you know, Wiley e. Coyote type trap. You know, he thinks he's going to capture the roadrunner and he finds out he's hoisted on his own petar. He falls into his own trap. This is, you know, they, the, the idea is that Satan deceives the world and they come to the gathering place where God then judges them in one fell swoop. Okay. Enough with Armageddon. I'm done with it. As we head into this passage now here, verses 17 through 21, um, this passage here completes the fourth cycle of seven that we see in the book of Revelation. And as with all the previous cycles that we've seen so far, the cycle ends with the end, okay? Which kind of makes sense. It ends with the return of Christ, it ends with final judgment at the end of the age. And here, Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age. His return brings an end to this age and then ushers in the age to come. That's what we're going to see in this um, passage here tonight. All right, so now you may be thinking, again, you're looking at your hand up, five points, Pastor. You're going to, you're going to keep us here until 9 o'clock? Hopefully not. These are shorter points. But as we look now, the first point, we see the fulfillment of wrath in verse 17. And again, like the previous uh, six bowls, which were poured into various parts of creation, right? The, the, the air or the, you know, the rivers, the water, um, uh, you know, on the sun, they poured them out into the rivers and springs, the sea poured them out on the earth. This, this, this bowl is poured out into the air. The seventh angel comes and pours his bowl into the air, and we see what happens in verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven, 
from the throne saying, it is done. Now, what is significant about the air other than it's just another one of these areas of creation, right, that we see here, the sun, the waters, the earth, uh, and and the rivers and, and springs and so on. But we oftentimes think of the air or the sky in the Bibles referred to as the heavens, right? You've got the heavens and then you've got the heaven of heavens, you know, the third heaven or the where God dwells. But then you have the heavens, which is basically just the sky. And it calls to mind the spiritual warfare that is being waged in the invisible realm where we saw previously in Daniel, right? The, the, you know, what's going on in this invisible realm with angels and demons and stuff is reflected in the real world in the battle between kings and nations and so on and so forth. But we also know that Paul, in Ephesians 2, verse 2, says that Satan is the prince of the power of the what? Of the air. He is the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So when this bowl is poured out into the air, it is first and foremost being poured out onto or in Satan's domain of influence. He pours it out into the air Because we know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So this judgment is first and foremost on Satan's domain of influence. The one who along with the beast and the false prophet deceived the kings and nations of the world. Now, once that bowl is poured out, we hear a loud voice come out of the temple from the throne. This is again, we've seen this throughout. Every time you see the temple in Revelation, it is the heavenly temple. It is the sort of the original temple, the archetypal temple from which all earthly versions of the temple are but a copy. Again, I refer you to the book of Hebrews or the actually even you know, Exodus where Mo, God tells Moses to make such and such as he sees uh, the... the you know, the, the pattern from what he sees, you know, that God has shown him. God shows him a pattern of the tabernacle, of the utensils, and they are reflective of this heavenly temple. This is also the heavenly temple from which the seven angels that were carrying these bowls, they emerge from in, in chapter 15, verse 6. They come out of the temple with these bowls of wrath. And one of the cherubim, one of the heavenly attendants of God's throne, is seen giving each of these angels a bowl filled with the wrath of God as they are coming out of the temple. And then once that was done, the temple, and the word being used there for temple, is used to speak of the holy of holies, the actual main temple part. There's two words that are used in the Greek to talk about the temple. One speaks of the the general temple grounds. And the other one speaks of the actual like holy of holies, the inner sanctum. And that's the word that is used here. So once these angels leave the heavenly temple, the, the, the sanctuary is filled with smoke. That is God's glory, His Shekinah glory. His presence is being seen there, uh, in an, you know, being described in a vision in the temple there. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, we hear a voice coming out of the temple commanding the angels to pour out their bowls. So God then commands the angels, pour out your bowls. Pour out the wrath of God upon the earth. 
And now we see at the end of this, so kind of almost bookending this entire cycle of bowls, it starts off with a voice coming from the temple, and it ends with a voice coming from the temple. So the first voice says, pour out the bowls of wrath. The last voice says, it is done. It is done. This is the voice of the Lord speaking from the throne in the heavenly temple. Once that seventh bowl is poured out, he says, it is done. Now, this is bad news for those who dwell upon the earth, right? Bad news, very bad for those who dwell upon the earth, the wicked. It is good news for Christians who have been waiting for this moment. We have been waiting. We are, even now, we are waiting for this moment. Again, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Why? Because we want Christ to return. We want Christ to return and put an end to this age. We want Christ to return and put an end to the wickedness we see in the world. We want Christ to return and fix this broken world. We want Him to return. We want God to vindicate all those who have gone before us. The martyrs who have given their lives for the faith. The people who are even now suffering throughout the world for their faith. We want God to come and vindicate him, them. And when He pours out His wrath and He is done, that is it. And this is good news for the people of God. Well, the reality of this, we pray for the kingdom to come. We pray for it to be a reality. And here we see the reality has come. All of the sins that God has up to that point in time patiently endured are now have been judged. Romans 9.22 says that God has endured with much long-suffering, much patience, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And that time has finally come. And it's interesting because as we're going to see in a moment, we see how later on in this passage, God remembers, you know, this is great Babylon where he's remembered by God, when we see this idea of wrath being finished finally, and we see this long-suffering, right? God is enduring right now with long-suffering, with much patience, the vessels of wrath. It can kind of make us feel that God has forgotten sin. You know, we, we see all the passages in, think of the Psalms. Think of how the psalmist says, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to prosper? Why all of this? And then, of course, then you see, what is it, in verse, uh, what is it, Psalm 73? You get that great turnaround in Psalm 73. I'm off script, by the way, in case you wanted to know. This just popped, popped into my head here. But Psalm 73 talks about how the wicked seem to prosper. What's going on here? Why are they prospering? And let's see, here we go. And then in verse 17, well, verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Now think about that. The psalmist is wondering, why do the wicked prosper? And when he thinks about it, when he takes time to think about it, he says, it is too painful for me. It is too, my, my sense of justice and outrage at the wicked succeeding and the righteous being um, persecuted for their faith is too much for me. Then he says in verse 17, until. So that's kind of like a variation of my favorite word, but. 
right? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their ending. What is their ending? God's bowls of wrath will be poured on them. Once he understood their ending, then he stopped worrying about why the wicked are prospering because he knows it's just storing up wrath. Right? Romans 2.4 The patience of God is meant to drive you to repentance. Why? Because that wrath is being stored up behind this dam that will one day break. And when it does, it's going to pour out a tsunami of wrath on the wicked. So just as God's wrath for our sins was poured out on Christ when He was on the cross, His last words on the cross were, it is finished. It is done. The wrath of God has been poured out and satisfied by Me, Christ, on the cross for My people. So too, God here in His final bowl will pour out His final wrath on the wicked and say, it is done. So you can either be one of those who have Christ say it is finished, or you can be one of those who have God at the end of the age say it is done, the wrath has been poured out on you. So now, moving on to verse 18, the shaking of creation. So the bowl is poured out, and then we're going to see a few effects of what happens. Again, this is all vision. We need to understand this is a vision, not... We're not to take this in a woodenly literal sense, but as a result of the seventh bowl being poured out into the air, we see all kinds of things going on. The first we see here, I'm just going to call it the shaking of creation in verse 18. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on earth. So John sees, probably better to say John hears, (laughs) John sees and hears noises and thunderings and lightnings. He sees a great pyrotechnic sound and light show takes place when the seventh bowl is poured into the air. Now, we've seen this sort of combination of things before. Thunder, lightning, noises, earthquakes. It happens regularly in the book of Revelation. Way back in Revelation 4, when John is first caught up in the Spirit and brought into the throne room, we see in chapter 4, verse 5, he sees God sitting upon the throne, and from the throne proceed lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And that word in Greek, voices, is the word phone. Think of phone. And it means a voice or a noise. So he hears thunderings, lightnings, and noises. In chapter 8, verse 5, the breaking of the seventh seal. After the 30 minutes of silence, again we see in verse 5 of chapter 8, noises, thunderings, and lightnings. At the sounding of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11, verse 19, guess what we see as heaven is opened up? Can you guess? Lightnings, thunderings, and noises. Sensing a theme here? This is typical... Judgment imagery. This is typical end of the age, end of the world imagery. These are the telltale signs that the day of the Lord has come. God is coming in final judgment. I've mentioned this several times before, in, in, I believe in, even in our Revelation study, but I think it bears repeating. 
because we see that scene again in Exodus 19. It keeps coming to my mind. So, you know, you can blame kind of my brain maybe just stuck on an Exodus 19 kind of thing. But God meets His people. They have been freshly delivered from the land of Egypt. They are now at the base of Sinai waiting to meet with God. That was the whole point of the Exodus, right? God tells Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go so they can go out and worship me. So here they are. They're waiting at the base of Sinai. And in Exodus 19, verses 10 and 11, God tells Moses to consecrate the people. Get the people ready. Because I'm going to show up. I'm going to show up. Get the people of Israel ready. Because in three days, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. Okay. Now, sure enough, then on the third day, what do we see when God comes down on the top of Mount Sinai? Thunder and lightning and noises. A thick cloud appears on the mountain so that all the people in the camp trembled. They saw God. Well, they didn't see God. Okay. They, they saw the manifestation of God entering His creation. Think about that for a moment, right? God created all this, and when the Creator of all things sort of breaks into His creation, it causes all of this havoc, right? Thunders and light. I mean, mountains shaking. That's not a good sign. Mountains are usually, you know, they're stable. They don't move. Yet, here's this mountain shaking. And all the people, of course, rightly tremble. God, full of glory, full of awesomeness as He enters into His creation and in a sense kind of touches the top of Mount Sinai. So these phenomena that we see here signal that the end has indeed come. We also see a great earthquake in, in, in the pouring out of the bowl here. A great earthquake, an unprecedented earthquake. The worst earthquake you've ever seen. Worse than any have ever come and any that will ever come. The, the worstest of earthquakes. And again, in each of those passages I cited, the breaking of the seventh seal, uh, actually in the breaking of the sixth seal, you get an earthquake. Uh, and you get earthquakes in the f- sounding of the seventh trumpet. These, the, all of these signs, the thunders, lightnings, and noises are accompanied by a great earthquake. Revelation 6.12, when the sixth seal was broken, a great cosmic disturbances are seen. The sun is darkened. Stars fall from the sky. And there was a great earthquake. And that phrase there, as had not occurred since men were on the earth, is meant to signal the idea that this is a great cataclysm. The, 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 the cataclysmic nature of these phenomena. Is, it is, this truly is, as we've said, the great and terrible and awesome Day of the Lord. It is Judgment Day. And it is, it is met with the appropriate kind of effects, if you will. In fact, I'm kind of reminded of what Paul says in Romans 8. I think it's verse 18. I didn't put the reference down. But we know that the whole creation groans and labors like a woman in childbirth. She, you know, the creation is waiting, 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 waiting for the moment when God comes, Christ comes at the end of the age, and the sons of God, that is us believers, are revealed. And creation will continue to groan and labor until Christ returns. So that's the first effect of the bowl, the seventh bowl being poured. The second effect 
of the seventh bowl being poured is in verse 19, where we see what I'm calling the end of civilization as we know it. The fall of civilization. Verse 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. It's a lot of ofs. The cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So we see how the great city here, we'll get into the great city in a moment, is divided into three parts. I don't think there's anything significant about the three parts. It shows that the great city is torn into pieces as God's wrath is poured onto it. Whatever this great city is, it is falling apart. Now, this great city, you could kind of call it a reference to the city of man, the city of the world, if you will. Um, If you remember back in Revelation chapter 11 with the two witnesses, the two witnesses were given authority uh, and protection to prophesy for 42 months. And then when that period is completed, we see that the beast overcomes them and then the dead bodies of the two witnesses are left and displayed openly in the streets of what we see are called there the great city. So in Revelation 11.8, that's where it says the great city is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So that's a first reference to the great city in Revelation. Now when you take those three together, think about it. What do Sodom and Egypt and unbelieving Jerusalem, that's the city where our Lord was crucified, what do Sodom, Egypt, and unbelieving Jerusalem all have in common? Bad. They're wicked, right? They're all representations of Christ-rejecting, God-hating society. Sodom was a cesspool of debauchery and fornication and wickedness. Egypt was a place where the people were enslaved. And Jerusalem is the place where the Messiah was killed. God-hating, Christ-rejecting world society. The great city. We see another reference to the great city in Revelation 14.8 when the three angels are making their three proclamations during that period. And the second angel proclaims that Babylon, the great city, is fallen. The great city has fallen. And we'll see coming soon, Revelation 17-18, that the great prostitute that we're going to see in weeks to come uh, is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So the great city goes by a number of names. But the most prominent one, of course, is Babylon. Babylon is sort of just the symbol of of evil in the Bible is a symbol of anything that is anti-God, opposed to God and His people. It goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Babylon is just the place of wickedness. It is the anti-God city of man. And the seventh bowl, as it's poured out, spells the destruction of all anti-Christian world society. It is the, the, the destruction of world society as the great city was divided into three parts. And then we see later in that verse, the cities of the nations fell. 
The cities of the nations, cities of the Gentiles, they fall when this bowl, when Babylon is destroyed and this bowl is poured out. And then we see that great Babylon was remembered by God. Now, again, sort of like with the it is done, in a lot of ways, when God remembers things, it's a good thing, right? When God remembers things, it's a good thing. Noah was in his ark, right? Of course, another example of the judgment of God, a, another cataclysmic example of the judgment of God with, hey, guess what? Thunders and lightnings and earthquakes occurred during the flood. So there you've got judgment, right? And Noah's in his in his big old boat. Don't think of like the kitty pictures with the little boat bouncing around and bobbing around on the ocean with the animal heads sticking out. He's on this big massive barge, right? He's out there. And we see that in, in uh, Genesis 8 that God remembers Noah. In other words, God didn't forget Noah. He didn't leave him on the boat to bob around on the flood for forever. He remembered Noah. Later on in Genesis, God remembers Rachel, Jacob's wife, right? Rachel, no, sorry, Isaac's wife. Isaac's, right? No, Isaac was Rebecca. Sorry, Rachel. Yeah, I was right the first time. should go with what my, my, my heart says. Rachel, Jacob's wife, she was what? Barren, right? She had no children. She's lamenting this as her sister, her older sister Leah, is having all these children, giving all these children to Jacob. And Rachel's like, I need children. And Jacob's like, why are you crying to me? (laughs) I'm not God. You need to go to God for this. And we find out later, God remembered Rachel. God remembered His people in Egypt when they cried out, For the oppression, God remembered the covenant He made with His people. God remembered Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. She was also barren. God gave her children. The Psalms say that God remembers that we are but dust. That our frame is frail. That we are weak. He remembers that. He knows that. And another one of the Psalms says that God remembers our sins no more. He chooses not to remember our sins. These are all good things. But, when God remembers the sins of the wicked and the unrepentant, that's bad. When He remembers the sins of the wicked and the unrepentant, it's bad. Now again, it's good for us because it can be seen, as we said earlier, God has forgotten. Right? We see Babylon, the great, you know, we see world society, anti-God, God-hating society, seems to be in the ascendancy, right? The church seems to be shrinking and the world seems to be growing around it and we see just how society has become more and more corrupt. You can't even, you know, used to be in this country, you could go out and you can sort of talk about the Bible and even if they weren't Christian, at least people had an understanding of the Bible. They had an understanding of Christian ideas. Now that's gone. That, we are well past that point in society. You mentioned the Bible, people are like, what's that? that dusty old book that you know, no one reads. So we are in uh, anti-God, anti-Christ, God-hating society, and it can seem like we are back in the first half of Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? So God remembers the sins. He has not forgotten. He has not forgotten the sins of the unrepentant. But with the pouring out of the seventh bowl, God remembers Babylon. And He remembers specifically how Babylon had made the nations drunk with the wine of her fornication. We'll see that again 
in a couple of weeks too. In uh, Revelation 17, in verse Revelation 17:2, this great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And again in verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So this prostitute, this harlot sitting on this massively ugly beast, Babylon, is drunk with the blood of the martyrs. She is drinking the blood of the martyrs. Again, think about you know Babylon represents anti-God society, and she is against the church as the church uh, as members of the church are martyred, she is in a, you know, figuratively drinking the blood of the martyrs, getting drunk on that. So God turns the tables and says, now you are going to drink the cup of my wrath. And you're going to drink it all the way down to the dregs. The cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. And again, as we saw earlier, this is just. This is fitting. Third, the third effect of the bowl being poured out, the renewing of creation in verse 20. So look at verse 20, please. Very short verse. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next. All right. It's a very short verse that basically sa- is saying islands are fleeing and mountains are, are lost. They're not found. But in another way, it's saying something very profound if you think about it, right? Because again, creation, when God made creation, after each day of creation, God says what? It is good, right? I make something. Because I'm a good God, what I make is good. I make creation good. And when He was done, and He put man in the garden, it was what? Very good. He created and ordered everything just right with the utmost care. And when it was done, He called everything very good. Now when Adam and Eve sinned, the results weren't just felt by them. Right? The effects of sin don't just affect us. The curse of Adam doesn't just affect Adam and his progeny after him. In Genesis 3.17, when God is pronouncing the curse on Adam, right? When the fall happens, he pronounces a curse on the serpent. He pronounces a curse on the woman. And then he turns to Adam and he says, because of you, the ground is cursed. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. You're going to have to work for your bread, Adam. Before the earth was... Can you imagine farmers living in a pre-fall society? You wouldn't have to do anything hardly, right? Just throw a few seeds out. You know, you'd get bumper crops all the time. It rained exactly when you needed to. Now, because you can blame Adam. Because of Adam, you have to work hard. Thorns and thistles will be produced. The ground is going to give its fruits grudgingly because it has been cursed. In Leviticus, when God is telling the people through Moses to avoid these really gross sexual sins in Leviticus 18, he says, you need to avoid these things. You need to keep my commandments and statutes lest the land vomit you out as it's vomiting out the current inhabitants. See, people sin and it affects the ground, it affects the creation, and in a sense, the creation is like, just kind of spits you out of, of, of the land. And God is saying, if you do the same things that the people 
that were there before our doing, the land will vomit you out just as it did them. I think we've so, in a way, downplayed our sin in this day and age. It seems to be passe, even in our culture, to speak of sin. It's an antiquated term, right? We, we don't use that word anymore. You made a mistake. Or, I'm just human. Or, you know, it's, it's not a bug, it's a feature. <laughs> talking from an IT perspective, right? Yet sin has cosmic consequences. God didn't just curse Adam and Eve when they sinned. He cursed all of creation. So as such, in order for the new heavens and the new earth to come, to become a reality, the old heavens and the old earth need to pass away. It is corrupted. That's why it groans and labors, waiting to be renewed, just like we are renewed by Christ. And that's what we see happening in verse 20. When Christ returns at the end of the age, the old order of things will pass away and they will be done with. Going back to Revelation 6.14 with the breaking of the sixth seal, we see that the sky receded. The sky sort of rolled up like a scroll. And just like, you know, when you take a a scroll and you unroll it and you just kind of let it go, just, boop, you know, kind of just rolls right back up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Kind of sounds like what's happening here, right? Islands are fleeing and the mountains are no longer seen. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, when Jesus sits upon the great white throne, we see the earth and heaven fleeing at his presence. All of this is part of the seventh bowl, which when poured, fulfills the wrath of God and marks the great regeneration and renewal of all creation. This is the point that the earth is waiting for now. It's like, I am ready, for, you know, speaking anthropomorphically as the earth, I am ready for this. I am ready to be renewed. I am ready for the sons of God to be revealed so I can be everything God made me to be as well. And finally, verse 21. We'll move a little more rapidly here. The... Judgment on the wicked, in verse 21. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Again, the hailstorm calls to mind the seventh plague that fell on Egypt. All these judgments that we see in the bowls and the trumpets, all sort of point back to Egypt. So Egypt, in a way, is sort of like the dress rehearsal. Okay, It's the dress rehearsal for God's wrath. God pours His wrath out literally on Egypt in hail and darkness and all kinds of things, water turning to blood, you know, frogs, locusts, flies, so on and so forth. God is, that's His dress rehearsal for final judgment, which is why the imagery we see in the bowls and the trumpets, points back to what we see in Egypt. Okay, So these great hailstones come down. Hail like lightning and thunder and earthquakes are a sign of the end and is commonly seen in these end-time passages. Now farmers, you all know how destructive hail can be, right? Hail can be extraordinarily destructive. You know, you take a small hailstone about the size of a ping-pong ball or a golf ball, that can and you get a bunch of those falling down, that can destroy your crop. Now, I don't know what, how big a talent is. 
75 pounds. I know one other translation said 100 pound, right? Okay, now what, how big would that be of a hailstone? Maybe about like, you know, bigger than a beach ball? <laughs> okay, huge, huge hailstones falling down. What would that do to your crops, farmers? <laughs> Yeah, you only should got a lot of fro. Yeah, when it melts, you would be like rain. Okay, very destructive. The seventh plague of hail wreaked havoc on Egypt. Now you've got these seventy-five to hundred-pound hailstones falling. Obviously, this is figurative, right? Because we see here that the hailstones fell upon men. All right, if a hundred-pound hailstone fell on me, I'm dead. I'm sorry. I'm just gonna, you know, I'll be squished like a bug. It's figurative, right? But as judgment is coming down like 100-pound hailstones, you get this death and devastation. It would create, would be untold, and if these hailstones fell upon a person, that person would, be able to, would not be able to blaspheme God. But what we see here is that as judgment is being poured out by God, just like in the fourth bowl, in the fifth bowl, presumably in the sixth bowl, and in the seventh bowl, they do not repent. They shake their fist at God. God judges them, and they refuse to repent. They shake their fist. They blaspheme God. And in the, seventh, in the sixth bowl, they just gather to try to destroy God. So this judgment falls on everybody. And as this judgment, as this final judgment is falling on God, they refuse to repent. Now, what's amazing about this is not so much that they refuse to repent. What's amazing about this is that God even gives them a chance to repent. These people have been rejecting God forever, right? When it comes to the end, it, that's, you know, the, the wrath has been building up for all this time and it's now being poured out. God's patience has, for all intents and purposes, ended as far as it goes with, with, the, with the wicked here. And even then, there's this sort of like this last chance to repent and they refuse to repent. The wickedness of man knows no bounds. The fall is true. And the, the fact that we are totally depraved is proved by these verses. Right? Without the grace of God, we would be here. Right? As James Bradford said there, but for the grace of God go I. You know, if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy in, in, in my life, I would be right here. I would be shaking my fist at God. There would be... There, Think about it, there's no foxhole conversions going on here in the bowl judgments, right? The bowl judgments fall, no one's like, oh God, please help. No. If they're saying anything to God, they're saying, curse you, God. Why are you doing this? They are blaspheming God. But again, the good news is that with these bowl judgments, the wrath of God is complete and the day of judgment has come. And then as we will see in uh, later lessons, We'll start moving closer and closer to the return of Christ. We'll see the fullness of that. Each of these, as we've been going through these cycles in Revelation, while they all talk about the same period of time, they are more and more progressing closer and closer to the end and focusing more and more on the end. Because the next thing we'll see is a sort of in 17 and 18, um, more in-depth about Babylon, more in-depth about the evil world society that, that seduces men and seduces nations and seduces kings, and the fall of Babylon is talked about in great detail. Then we'll see heaven rejoicing over that. We'll see in full detail in chapter, at the end of chapter 19 the return of Christ 
And then you know, later on we'll see finally the new heavens and the new earth once it's all said and done and Jesus returns at the end of the age. But that's the fourth cycle of bowls. It's done. Next time, uh, we will not again be meeting on the, the, the 20th. The next meeting should, does your, do your handout say the 3rd of April? Sometimes I forget if I put the date on there. Okay, April 3rd, that will be, Lord willing, the next uh, meeting for us. No meeting on the 20th.